I think it would be appropriate in light of this week's events and some of the heaviness that has surrounded our country to, I don't know that we can lighten it, but I think we should take a moment and just close our eyes and in the wellness of spirit that God allows us to hold a space for the feminine, for women, for those this week who have had wounds ripped open, wounds that they've tried to forget. We lift up those who first testified of Christ's resurrection and yet were not believed by the men. Somehow, God, even in the sacred text of Christianity, you're saying something. You purposefully chose women, perhaps even knowing they wouldn't be believed. We pray that a more robust interpretation of the gospel come through Christianity and provide healing. We lift up those who would testify courageously, those who would speak power to truth. We pray for true repentance that it would come over our country, over men. We hold this space now. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Thank you. You can be seated. Thank you, Matt. All the junior hires, you guys can head out to class. Matt, did anybody mention the fact that we had a marriage this week? You might. Would you uh, want to pronounce that? Nathaniel and Elliot, stand up. So I just want to say, you guys all know, we're finding out how great Nathaniel is and what a vital part of our congregation he is, and uh, we are additionally blessed. If you don't know Elliot, um, many of us don't know him that well, but it doesn't take long to be around him to realize he's a special person too. So we're blessed by this couple, and they just decided to get hitched. So as my granddad said, marriage is a wonderful institution for those who want to be institutionalized. That wasn't as encouraging as I th No, God bless you guys. We're happy, happy, happy for you and happy that you're a part of our congregation. Um, so this is our, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Um, and before we do that, I just wanted to say this is our last evening, Sunday, at Unity. And we'll be here on Wednesday nights throughout the month of October doing midrash, and then our midrash will move over to the library across from uh, the new digs, uh, Clementine on Charlotte. So lots of good stuff is happening, and we look forward to moving to Clementine. But 
this place has been a haven for us, and this is obviously had many challenges. We were, this state of transition has been very hard in many ways, but it's also been incredibly blessed in so many. And I just wanted, John, would you come up here? The pastor of unity, I'm sure he didn't want us to do this. He didn't want us to do this, but what I would like for you to do is I'd like you to preach the sermon on this last night. Would you mind doing, just take that over. Um, could we, I don't, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Does this, does this work, Matt? Yeah, this worked. We just wanted to say, you guys have been so welcoming and so hospitable, and those words seem so trite compared to what we actually feel in our hearts. You have served this congregation in so many ways, but for me, I've told, I've said behind your back many, many times that I, I don't have lots of friends in ministry because this progressive world is quite small and we're kind of cut off from a lot of people. But um, I have found a dear friend in you, and I have said behind your back that you have been a shepherd and a real pastor in my life. And I just wanted us to take a moment and thank Unity and especially John for everything they've done for us this last 14 months. Would you tell him how much we are grateful? talk for two minutes. Talk, talk for as many as you want. It's easy in my experience, because I'm a generation older than Pastor Stan, that growing up in New York, there was always a lot of effort for Christians and Jews to get along. And I have found the greater need, especially in this place where we live, is for Christians and Christians to get along. And that we had that on our heart that this is something that I wanted to do to make this space available so we could have this grand experiment and it has been so beautiful and so rewarding and so rich and there are so many dividends which we will always be the beneficiary of so I'm going to thank you uh, for being here and for being amenable to collaboration and to public service working with Room at the Inn with Grace Point it's been a turning point in this church so thank you very much. And we love God you guys dearly. And we're going to continue Room at the End. Would you speak to that? We're going to continue our collaboration. That is correct. We're going to continue our collaboration that we are one of the 200 facilities, church facilities in the natural area that provide shelter for persons without shelter during the cold months. And so we're going to continue doing that on the fourth Sunday of each month. We're only going to do one night a month um, during this transition time to make sure that we don't drop the ball because it's important to provide the service you say you're going to provide. So we'll be starting at the end of November. It'll be the fourth Wednesday of every month and Christmas Day, Christmas night, the 25th of December. We'll be doing that too because I'm here and there's nothing that I would rather do than to be here in the church on Christmas Day with people who need the space. So I look forward to working with any of you that want to continue doing that, and it'll be on our Facebook page and, and other things. So we will be known. So we will continue our collaboration, not just Room at the End, but as sister congregations. Because Who uh, knows? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we need you guys, and maybe you need us too. We need each other. Yeah, we do. Absolutely. God bless you, man. One more time for John. Hey, and the folks thank you so much, Grace Point.
I've been reading the words of Jesus professionally for 34 plus years, and devotionally I've been reading or hearing them for over four decades. For most of those years, studying, hearing the words of Jesus, I always assumed, and I think it's because I was taught this, I always assumed that in studying the words of Jesus, His words were generally cryptic, and they were kind of esoteric. They were infused with hidden meanings, at least implicitly, and I think at times explicitly. I was taught that in order to mine or uncover these embedded meanings, their reader, in this case me, had to possess an elevated level of spiritual aptitude. Uh, maybe even tougher, had to possess an elevated level of sincerity or spirituality. Uh, there was even a phase where I believe that the reader had to possess some divinely endowed capacity for insight that was just given to a few. It was almost uh, a Gnostic idea. I've come to no longer believe that. And in recent years, I have found what feels like a better and a truer approach to the teachings of Jesus. And this church, this congregation, and especially Wednesday night, our midrash time together, has played no small, small part in this shift for me. These days, I don't approach the wisdom teachings of Jesus like a miner burrowing down, trying to find those esoteric levels of meaning. When I read the words of Jesus these days, I try to come to them with what Buddhists call a beginner's mind, the same way you should approach any wisdom teacher's words. I try to approach the words of Jesus not so much with a lexicon and a knowledge of the original languages, but I try to approach His words with open hands and with open heart and open mind. And I try as much as I can, and this is impossible to do completely, but I try as much as I can to be free or to free myself of filtering presuppositions, theological biases, personal bents that would yield ulterior motives that I might not even recognize or be willing to admit. And I assume these days when I come to the words of Jesus, I assume that His straightforward desire when He said something was to benefit His students with easy-to-understand truth, things that it seems He was saying a child could even understood or understand if they heard them. I've come to assume that He wasn't playing some hyper-spiritual game of intellectual cat and mouse where only the elite could figure Him out. To this end, when I read the words of Jesus these days, I look for the simplest meanings of the words. And almost always when I look for the simplest meanings of the words, in their simplicity, normally that simplicity yields some really powerful capacity for transformation in my life. So assuming that approach this afternoon, before we receive the Lord's Supper, I just wanted to say something briefly, but I think that is really, really profound in so many ways, in its simplicity, and really, really possesses the capacity to transform our lives. I wanted just to look at the first of Jesus' fame beatitudes. Really the first thing that He said as He began His earthly ministry of being a profound rabbi and wisdom teacher. 
Matthew 5 says that when Jesus saw the crowds, to begin his ministry, he literally, in response to the crowds, went up on a mountain and he sat down. And when he sat down, the Bible said in that perched place, all of the disciples began to gather in. There was this sense that that he was going to say something and he was going to teach them. They had no idea that it was going to be this famed Sermon on the Mount, but as they gathered around, Jesus began that Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, and he began the Beatitudes, the nine or ten blessings, with this word. Jesus looked out at that crowd and said, blessed are the poor. Matthew's gospel said that Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke's gospel said Jesus simply said, blessed are the poor. Either of these memories, though they are different or easily reconciled, the gist is, the common denominator was Jesus was pointing to this idea that a person could be blessed in spite of poverty. Now, the question then begs, what poverty is this that he's talking about? And we'll come to that in just a moment. But the first word out of his mouth that day is an interesting word. It's the word blessed. And blessed these days is used almost exclusively as a religious word, as a religious expression. And I will say, and I I think I'm probably safe in speaking for you, the word blessed is without question one of the more problematic and displeasing words in the vocabulary many of us here in the Southeast know and loathe called Christianese. Blessed. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Oh, I'm Jocelyn, you're nodding. You know exactly what I am so. Everybody say it with me. I am so. Doesn't that just make you vomit a little bit in your mouth? In Christianese, honestly, this is a word that sadly, because words get worn out, and this is a word that for me, I, I avoid almost at all cost. There are times that it's so a part of my, you know, my conditioned brain, it's down in my hippocampus, and there are times that I almost say it and I catch myself, and I choose not to. I find a synonym. In Christianese, in Christianese and in, our, in a traditional theology, the thing that has caused so much angst for some of us around this word is a blessing is a gift from God. To be blessed is to be intentionally given a gift by God. And I, I doubt it's necessary, and I won't take the time because you guys are smart, very smart on this stuff. You've lived through this. And I don't think I have to explain the philosophical, theological problems created by this word and all of the assumptions that come with it. Blessed. I remember as a kid growing up listening to Sister Butler talk about how she and Brother Butler just bought a new Pontiac, and on the way home, Bob, from the Pontiac dealership, a a gravel truck threw a rock, hit their windshield, cracked it, and they pulled over on the side of the road, Sandy, and laid hands on the windshield. And and did you know that the the windshield was healed and they were so blessed? And three rows over from them, Glenn, was a family in our church whose child had been wrestling sickle cell anemia for 10 years and was coming down the home stretch soon to die. And, and, And 
the word was just freighted. Its usage was just freighted with this idea of what in God's name is God doing healing windshields and disregarding the long and plaintive cries of a mother for her child. You know, what's God doing blessing us with new bass boats and fishing rods and for crying out loud, a season ending, you know, uh, I'm sure somewhere around the end zone today when the Titans scored the winning touchdown, somebody used the word, oh, I'm just blessed. If I hear one more athlete talk about the blessings of God, I hope God has nothing to do with touchdowns and home runs and wins in sports. But uh, I'm digressing here a bit. You understand what I mean by the word giving us consternation and problem. But there's a reason the word blessing has taken on and represents this idea of receiving benefits, advantages, and abundance directly from God. Actually, Jesus spoke in Aramaic. I'm not trying to do Bible school here, but Jesus spoke in Aramaic. The New Testament was written in Greek because it was the lingua franca of the Mediterranean rim and most of that world, even the Levant. But it was, it was, it, the Bible was written in Greek, or the New Testament was written in Greek, and the Greek word that is used to represent the word that Jesus spoke that day when He said, blessed are the meek, blessed are the hungry, blessed are the thirsty, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit, that Greek word is makarios. I want to tell you something interesting about that word makarios that was their word, John, for blessing. Makarios in Koine Greek initially in its usage, for probably a hundred years, makarios was only related to the gods. The makarioi, or the blessed ones, were the gods. They had achieved a state of happiness and contentment in life that was beyond all the cares, labors, and even death. The makarioi, or the blessed ones, were the beings who lived in some other world away from ours, above the problems and vicissitudes of this world. They did not have the ordinary concerns of people. So the makarioi were originally, this word was related just to the gods, just the pantheon above. To be blessed, to be makarioi, to be blessed, you had to be a god. After, it seems, uh, philologists tell us after a couple of hundred years of usage, makarios took on a second meaning. You might could guess this, it began to refer to the dead. The blessed ones were humans who through death had now reached the domain of the gods. And so for 100 to 150 years, not only was the makarioi the gods, now the makarioi were those who were beyond the cares and problems and worries of earthly life. To be blessed, you had to be dead. And that's actually the origin of the different saints' days. Saints are not honored in the Christian church on the day of their birth. They're honored on their day of their death because that's the day of their beatification, the day of their blessing when they transfer. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. That was the original by and by promise that Christianity was so built upon, just getting to the other world where we could be with the gods and be makarioi or blessed. Eventually, though, finally in Greek usage, probably 75 to 100 years before Jesus, as best we can tell, makarioi or makarios came to refer to a third group, not just the gods, not just the dead who were with the gods, but makarioi began to refer to the elite, the upper crust, 
the upper crust of society, the wealthy people. The word that the Greek writer used to translate the Aramaic of Jesus, when Jesus said, blessed are the poor, makarioi, makarios, singular. This word eventually, somewhere around the time of Jesus or a century before Jesus, came to refer to people whose riches and power put them above the normal cares and problems and worries of the lesser folk. The peons, the hoi polloi, those who struggled were not makarioi. Those who were constantly worrying and fretting and struggling with life and laboring hard, these were not the makarioi. To be blessed, you had to be rich and powerful. So, you see, in all of these meanings, the blessed ones were those who lived in a higher plane than the rest of us. They were the gods. They were the elite and holy dead. They were the wealthy and the upper crust, which is interesting. The wealthy and upper crust were assumed to be blessed by God. They were those with many possessions. The blessed ones were those people and beings who lived above the normal cares, problems, and worries of normal people. Very interesting. Before the word was used by New Testament writers, placed into the mouth of Jesus, makarioi, makarios are those who are poor, makarios are those who are persecuted, makarios are those who are meek, blessed are those who do these things or find themselves in these states. The word was used by our Jewish ancestors who first wrote their text, obviously, in their native tongue, their mother tongue, Hebrew. But in the couple of centuries before Jesus, with the strength of the uh, Greek empire, the Greek language became the lingua franca and primary language of the Mediterranean rim, and even over into Mesopotamia. It was the language of that world, that three-continental world was dominated by the Greek language. And so, these Jewish people who had their text in Hebrew now were having children, progeny, who didn't really know the Hebrew language that well, so they translated the Hebrew Bible. They translated the Hebrew Bible into what's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. The Dead Sea Scrolls were a big find in this because the Dead Sea Scrolls verified the Septuagint. They were literally first and second generation copies of the original Septuagint. Interesting, in the Septuagint, the Greek word makarios is used to translate a Hebrew word, barakah. And the word barakah in Hebrew was a word that was used by the writers many times. Specifically, it was placed into the mouth of God to indicate those who were favored by God. So there's a consistent theme here. As a matter of fact, there's a concept that really dominates, and I'll, I'll say this pretty quickly and then we'll go to the Lord's Supper, but I want to bring this to a, a really important point. There's a concept that dominates the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's a fancy word, don't get lost in the word, but the word is Deuteronomism. Deuteronomism or the Deuteronomic Covenant. And the Deuteronomic Covenant is a dominating idea in early Judaism. The Deuteronomic Covenant says this. God made a covenant with His people Israel. 
The Deuteronomic Covenant already assumed a particular idea that, as lovely as it sounds, is really a dangerous and damaging idea. It was built upon the foundation that this group of people felt like they were exclusivistically the people of God. Modern Judaism has fortunately grown out of those themes. But early on, there was this exclusivistic idea that we were the winners and the rest of the world were the losers. This immature religious idea that for us to be blessed, somebody has to be cursed. This idea that somehow God has this elite spiritual country club and everybody else is an outsider, but we are the favored ones. Well, building upon that idea, the Jewish people found themselves in the fifth, sixth, and seventh centuries before Jesus, they found themselves on the short end of the stick politically or geopolitically. They found themselves in exile. This little group of people probably had begun to develop as a nomadic, mountainous people, a very small nation state there in the land we now call Palestine. They were one of many city-states. They were not millions of people. They weren't hundreds of thousands of people. They may have been thousands and tens of thousands. But somewhere, like many of the other religious sects in that area, they vied for this identity as we're the people of God. We are in and y'all are out. But now this little group of people found themselves in those 5th and 6th, 7th centuries before Jesus, they found themselves exiled in the land of Mesopotamia. Three particular empires dominated them in this 200-year period, 300-year period. First it was the Assyrians, then it was the Babylonians, then it was the Persians. And this group of people exiled and enslaved in this land of Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, by these three empires, they couldn't reconcile rationally how they could possibly be the people of God and yet have such a pathetic, labored, and painful existence. How could we possibly be the favored ones, the elite? And all of our life here in the Levant, we've been situated in this valuable piece of property, situated between what would become three major continents, a piece of property that is, is so important in terms of commerce and trade route. And, and like all of the other little nation states there, they were always literally like a rag doll or like a, a, a canine toy that was being jostled and torn between a Rottweiler, a Doberman, and a German shepherd. That's what these little country, these little nation states were, these little city states were, and Israel was one of them. And, and Israel was never on top, even though they fancied themselves the people of God. They were always either enslaved or exiled or murdered by these larger countries. So the best thing they could ever do was just become a vassal state of one of these empires. And they were always trying to figure out which of the empires to be a vassal state to, because if they picked the wrong empire and that empire lost to one of the other empires, they were in trouble. So this was always their lot. Well, long story short, they find themselves in exile and they say, how in the world could we claim to be the people of God with an existence this sorry, this pathetic? And they built a story because that's what people in that era did. History was not, Ted, about the recapturing of history or recapturing of events. History in those days, at least in Semitic cultures, and I think this is pervasive throughout all of ancient history, history wasn't as much about isolating exactly what had happened, 
But history was more a way of mythologically, legendarily taking kernels of fact and mixing them with bushels of insinuative property and, and building what was referred to as etiologies or ancient stories that helped us make sense of our present. That's the way they did history. You see how different that is from the way we do history these days. And it has great import or great impact on the way we read Scripture. So this is the story they wrote. They wrote a story and they said, we were the people of God originally, and we would be famously blessed by now if we had kept the bargain that God made with us. Sound familiar? If we would have done our part of the deal, we would be famously blessed right now because God started out with our original guy, Abraham, and said, I'll bless you if you keep covenant with me. And then translated through Moses, that covenant really got manifest in all of these rules and regulations. And eventually the story was told that when the children of Israel came up out of Egypt, guess what Egypt was? It was punishment for one of the times when they sinned. And so they explained that horrible experience down in Egypt as God's punishment. God used the foreign nation to punish us and whip us. But when they came up out of Egypt, at the end of the 40 years of traveling, 500 years before Jesus, the exiled Jewish family wrote a story, and they projected that story about 800 years back in the past. And the story was of 40 years of wondering, 40 years of preparation, 40 years of spiritual purging that eventually culminated on the eastern bank of the Jordan River in a little land called Moab as the children of Israel gathered looking over to the promised land that God said, if you'll do right, it'll be yours. And Deuteronomy 12 through 29, this is why it's called Deuteronomism, has Moses step up on a mountain and he divided the people on either side of the valley, put one group over here and another group over here, and for 17 chapters, he went through the mitzvot, the rules and regulations, and said, if you keep these, here's what you'll have. Wealth, fecundity, blessing, good marriages, lots of kids, big crops, lots of money, and you'll be a world power. But if you don't keep covenant, you'll be cursed and your entire existence will be miserably torn between the nations round about. So a group of people in exile had a choice to make. We either can mature and let go of having to be the people of God and the only ones God loves. We can mature and let go of that and see that everybody's God's children. We can let go of this need for there to be. I remember I was talking to Stan Jr. one time when he was 14. And he said, Dad, are you coming out today to play golf with me? I said, I can't, bub. And he said, well, I'm not going either. I said, why aren't you going? He said, I don't want to play. I said, well, go out, play against yourself. He said, well, that's no fun. I said, well, bub, it's the same golf course. Shoot a good score. I said, why wouldn't you do that? He said, it's just not as satisfying when there's not a loser. There's got to be a loser in order for somebody to be blessed, somebody, Jocelyn, has got to figure out, well, if that doesn't happen to me, does that mean I'm cursed? I've told the story many times before of me praying my 11-year-old summer that it wouldn't rain, and my team, Kiwanis, we won the championship, and it scarcely rained all summer long, and I'll never forget getting on that bus with Levi Pillow 
and the forlorn look on his face when I asked him, how was your summer? And Rachel, he said, not so good. And I said, what happened? He said, Daddy lost the farm. I said, why'd y'all lose the farm? Been in their family three generations. Why'd y'all lose the farm? He said, it didn't rain. Hmm. My blessing was his curse. So a group of people just could not let go. Ah, immature religion. Immature golfers, immature people, immature the spirit of competition. Stan Jr. said it so well. I, I really can't enjoy the blessing unless I know somebody's on the down. I can't enjoy the win unless somebody, somebody's got to be a loser. And so these people doing not just what Jewish people did, but people in that era because consciousness grows over time. It's amazing how Christianity, born out of Judaism, has lagged so far behind Judaism's progress on this. We, we picked up almost where our forebears were leaving off at that time. And, and even amongst ourselves we fight, you know, Catholics or Church of Christ, Baptist or Methodist. My, what a, what a terrible game we play. The need for somebody to be a loser. I mean, we, we can't just... We can't just have mansions and streets of gold. As immature as that actually is, we also need there to be, as my friends <laughs> said, and y'all have heard me say this many times when we were talking about hell back 20 years ago when we were first kind of thinking, May, maybe the gospel's better than this. I remember my buddy looked at me with great pain. He said, please don't take hell away from me. I need it for Hitler and Mama. There's a lot of psychology in our theology, isn't there? A lot of autobiography in it too. <laughs> Matthew's gospel is written by a Jewish writer to Jewish people vying for the idea that Jesus is the new Moses. So it's not surprising that Matthew's gospel gives us the infanticide. Remember how Moses was almost killed by Pharaoh? Jesus is almost killed by Herod. Guess where Jesus escapes to as a small child? Escapes to Egypt. Jesus fasts 40 days. Moses fasted 40 days. Moses went up on the mountain and got the Decalogue. Jesus begins his ministry going up on the mountain. It's so clear what the writer's doing 40 years after the fact. He's doing etiology. He's building theology more than recuperating or, you know, recounting facts. But I just wanted to say this. <clears throat> Jesus goes up on the mountain and literally defies Deuteronomism and the Deuteronomic Covenant. And Josh, everything that we've associated with what blessings and curses and how God blesses some and doesn't bless others, and it all has to do with… I remember I was in Owatonna, Minnesota one time, and I had gathered as a young Pentecostal evangelist, I'd gathered everyone up around front, Shelley, like we used to do, and it was the blessing time, and the music was going, and we were getting healed, and prayer lines, and all that. And I remember there was a fellow sitting in the back, and I went over to my friend Bruce, who was the pastor there in Owatonna. I said, what's his story? He said, go back and talk to him. So I went back and sat down as the church was in what I now call the, the Pentecostal mosh pit. We were down in, in just having a time. And I went back and I sat, with, sat down beside this guy and I said, Sir, why, brother, why don't you join us? He said, you, you don't want me down there. And I said, why wouldn't I want you down there? He said, well, I don't know 
if I want to be down there. But even if I did, you wouldn't want me down there. And he began to explain to me in that Pentecostal setting, which was very much a faith movement setting, where if you had enough faith and you did the right things, God responded to your prayers. He told me, he said, for the last seven years, my, fam my wife, who's not here, we're now split up. It's really destroyed our family. He said, we recently lost our child to a terminal illness, our little girl. I said, I can't even begin to tell you how profound that conversation was, listening to a man, Glenn, trying to figure out, had God failed or had he failed? And was there even a God at all? He was left with such horrible options because of such a horrible premise. The horrible premise being that somehow God is the grand chess master and there are people in this world that he blesses and there are things that, you know, they have secret handshakes and secret codes and secret rules that they live by and it really garners them all of the blessings. And then other people who are on the outside, they just don't have that kind of favor. So there are cursed people and there are blessed people. And I remember that guy, Sandy, just trying to wrestle. You guys have lost a child. I, I don't know if you wrestled with this theologically, but he was wrestling. Is there even a God? If there is, what kind of an SOB in the sky would this be? And then finally he said, surely God can't be an SOB, so it's probably got to be me that's the SOB. And what did I do? And then he began racking. There was a five-minute space, or it felt like five minutes, where he was racking his brain, confessing every bad thing he had ever done in his life, because surely that may have been why God wasn't able to get through and save that little girl. Just terrible theology. And I just want to say one of the great things that I love about Jesus is as the new Moses, he stepped up on that mountain and in full mosaic form, the first word out of his mouth was blessed, which was the first word out of Moses' mouth all those years before when he stepped up there on the bank of Moab. Blessed. And instead of saying, blessed are you if you do all of these right things, Jesus, right out of the chute, says, blessed are those who are poor. <laughs> blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And he just flips the whole thing upside down. And it doesn't even seem that this is a moral injunction where he's saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, because that's a form of humility and meekness. No, he talked about meekness later. This literally, Matthew's writer said that Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Luke's writer said, you know, you're making too much of that. He was just talking about poor on any level. It doesn't matter how you're poor. As a matter of fact, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually poor. Blessed are those who would normally be in the cursed side of things because their spirituality is so poor. No, no, no. He says, even blessed are those who don't get anything right. They have the capacity to be blessed in this world of love and abundance. And Jesus just took the entire religion of exclusivism and we're the people of God and we're the blessed ones and you got to do this and you got to do that and you got to cross the T and dot the I and all of that gains you favor. Jesus took all of that and he just flipped it upside down. And after telling them blessed were the poor in spirit, he walks down the mountain and the Bible said when he gets to the base of the mountain, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the exclamation point. He looks around, and as the religious leaders are there wanting to hogtie him and collar him, he looks around and he sees a leper. 
and right smack dab in the middle of the mitzvot is this injunction about you can't touch lepers. They are unclean. Jesus sees this leper, Josh, the poorest among them. I mean, these people, they literally had to live outside of society. They had to be away from their families. They had a skin condition, for crying out loud. But somehow religion can get so bad that skin conditions get wrapped up with how God's blessing you or not blessing you or you're doing something wrong and bringing curses on yourself. It's crazy. It's crazy as crazy can be. And it's so bad they have to live out. And if they even see they're not only responsible to stay away from people, they're responsible to help people stay away from them. So if somebody inadvertently gets too close, they have to put their hand over their mouth so as not to blow germs and start screaming, unclean, 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 stay away from me. I'm filthy. I'm bad. I'm cursed. I've done something wrong. And Jesus sees that guy, Gary, and walks over to him and touches him, and with his hand says, blessed are you. Everybody is blessed if they will simply open their hearts to the grace of all things. And ultimately, Jesus went on in the Gospel of Luke to describe that blessing of true wealth by saying, when you share with others And I suppose this is why I thought of this, John. Jesus said, when you share with others, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, when you share with others, you become rich toward God. I love that, rich in the direction of God. When you share with others, 1 Timothy 6, Paul said, teach those who are rich, don't trust in uncertain riches. Don't rest on them. But God has given us all things richly to enjoy and teach those who are rich in this world, be willing to share, laying up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't corrupt and thieves can't break through and steal. In that same gospel, Jesus one day told the story to his disciples. He said there was this really rich man and he was so rich that a poor man stationed himself at the gate of that man's mansion And every day the rich man would walk by the poor man and not even notice him. There was no sharing. There was this great gulf affixed in the economy of their life between the rich man and the poor man. He wouldn't even see him. He didn't associate that this was a human being. He dehumanized him. And then the rich man died. And all of a sudden the roles are reversed and the poor man dies, maybe of starvation, and the poor man goes into a heavenly place and the rich man goes into hell. And the rich man, listen to this, the rich man has an epiphany. And God, this is so not about literal hells and literal heavens. It's wisdom. It's wisdom literature. You know what the rich man recognized? He recognized the gift of sharing that he had missed. Because the rich man in hell doesn't cry out for water cries out for more than that. It would have been one thing if he would have lifted his voice and said, wow, this is hot here. Would you, would you send me some water? He didn't. He said, would you send the poor guy to bring me water? Wow. The epiphany from that vantage point was we should have been sharing all along. And then there was that profound statement, the poor man can't come to you because there's this great gulf affixed between you and him. Well, the reason there was a great gulf in the afterlife, people ask me all the time, they say, you believe in hell. I don't don't have any sense that God's going to torture people in eternity. I also think that this is a soul-making universe, and I think Hitler 
for example, lived in hell here, and I don't think you put a bullet in your head and everything gets cleared up. I think you will take your misery into whatever consciousness happens in the next world, and, and you will continue, your soul will continue in a purgative form to be refined. But I think the brilliance of that story is the reason there was a gulf affixed on the other side was because the, he simply carried that gulf from this side. And any time we have opportunities to do what unity has done for us, I mean, who shares like this? Who opens up their church? I mean, John's probably sitting back there right now thinking, is he really putting his feet in our pews? <laughs> because Jesus said, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because it's generally the poor man who recognizes. One thing about beggars, the mendicants, and the poor is they recognize the need for sharing. They recognize the need for sharing, and they will ask you to share with them. In all of their poverty, there is a base richness there in finding a place of humility that honestly says, I need you. And the rich man walked by that human need to share and said, nope, nope, nope. And then he gets on the other side and he says, I'll be damned. And he really was damned by himself. And now the taunt is, there's still a gulf here. The ultimate repair, I think if that story were written today, the wiser ending of that story would be that Lazarus would have gotten up out of the bosom of Abraham and he would have taken a cool drink of water because retribution and getting somebody back is not the ultimate in spiritual maturation. What a beautiful story it is now, Kelly, for us to take that text even further and say, let us, the ones who were cheated, be the ones who offer grace. And for Lazarus to have gone to him and to have taught him finally and graciously the art of teaching. So, John, thank you and unity for sharing. We have come to you poor in many ways, and we have seen the kingdom of heaven here just like Jesus promised, and it has been a rich experience for us, and I pray to goodness that we will share on the other side as well as y'all have shared with us. Can the grace pointers say amen? Let's receive the Lord's Supper now. Bow your heads as our attendants will have two stations. And this is a beautiful time just to recognize the union of all things because we now know that the body and the blood is not just of one bronze-skinned Galilean, nor of one sect called Christians, nor of one species called Homo sapiens, but ultimately the body of Christ is creation. It is all things. So we take it broken into our bodies, and then we allow that brokenness to repair and mend and create ultimate wholeness and strength and sustenance. So we prepare our hearts now. On this last evening at Unity, we are grateful for all that we have learned here. We're grateful. Sweet Christ, as progressives, we learned about a great gulf affixed between us and those who would picket us, those who would reject us. We are no martyrs for sure, but we have learned in Christianity there are a lot of gulfs between us and them. There are a lot of rich and poor. And to have found 
the sharing of another church has been such an example. We are grateful for the flip. Blessed are those who are poor. They will learn the need for sharing. And in this, they will see the kingdom of heaven right here on earth where there are no abusers and abused. There's no rich and poor, but we belong to one another. The kingdom of sharing. We pray these things now, opening our hearts as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper.